Hey, if you got a Bible, Mark chapter 6, thanks again for making the commitment to come to church this morning. Those of you watching online, we are so glad you're tuning in as well. We're actually in part 4 of a series of messages written by Mark as dictated to him by Peter, which if you're good at math, you're like, hold on a second part four, but we're in chapter six. What are you doing? Covering over a chapter per week? No, it's even worse than that. We skipped some chapters. So now you have to read them on your own. And I would encourage you to do just that. There's some good stuff in there. If you have questions, you can let me know. But uh, the only information you really need for this morning is Jesus and his disciples are on their way from Capernaum, 25 miles uh, to his hometown of Nazareth. This can sometimes confuse people because they're like, wait, I thought Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Oh, he was born in Bethlehem. That's why we sing that song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, but that's altogether different than Nazareth. So in short, Mary and Joseph fled Bethlehem shortly after Jesus is born. They go to Egypt after King Herod dies. They go back to Nazareth, bypassing Bethlehem on the way. And you thought you had to move a lot as a kid, but let's go. Mark chapter 6. Jesus left that part of the country, Capernaum. And returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Circle, star, underline, highlight, amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed, underline. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their belief, he couldn't. You mean wouldn't. No, it says he couldn't do any miracles because of their unbelief. He couldn't do any miracles among them and except place his hands on a few sick sick people and heal them. And he was amazed, underline, at their unbelief. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for making us free, no longer slaves to fear. God, help us as we try and digest your word and apply your word, do what only you can do, and give us an attitude of grace and humility as we encounter some amazing things that you have put into place for our joy and your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Someone once remarked, if you're not amazed, you're not paying attention. It's probably a lot of truth to that. This world is rather amazing when you put it in perspective little ball of water and land spinning at over a thousand miles per hour, hurtling around the sun, rotating on an axis that if it was just a degree off in one way or the other, life would be impossible. That's pretty amazing. Have you ever considered and wondered how we stay afloat in the air? Like uh, a friend of mine works at a quarry and we went there not too long ago and he was showing me around and he was talking about how many thousands of tons of rock has come out of this place and how they've had to move it from here and transported it over there. And in my mind, I was like, what is that doing to the earth? 
You know, like how is that not tipping the access or axis when you're moving all of that amount of stuff? You ever thought about stuff like that? Like how is it when you can put millions of people in one location? I don't know, like uh, when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl and we all partied together in Kansas City. And like, how does that not just make us collapse under the weight of everything and cause some sort of catastrophic gravity failure? You know, it's amazing. Or what about this? What about folks that uh, go to the doctor's office and they hear the horrible news? It's cancer. That's amazing. It's the amazing in the opposite way that the world is amazing just happened to some folks in my small group their son 23 years old it's cancer we need to do surgery immediately but then imagine a few weeks later the same doctor's telling you you're cancer free that also happened to this same young man no trace of it it's gone remission that's equally amazing right So the boys down at Merriam-Webster define amazement as experiencing sudden surprise or wonder. It's what you felt the first time you saw a magic trick as a kid, or what you felt when you went to the zoo for the very first time. It's what you appreciated about watching Shawshank Redemption and Morgan Freeman's voice of an angel. You ever wish you could go back and feel the amazement for the very first time and experience that sense of wonder and awe for the first time. I'm starting to feel the spirit of Lone Star in this place. And baby, I'm amazed by you. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, here we have a group of people amazed by Jesus, amazed by his teaching, amazed by his miracles, but their amazement quickly turns to annoyance. Verse 2, amazed. Verse 3, deeply offended. That got out of hand rather fast. So jot this down if you're taking notes. You can be amazed by what Jesus does and still take offense at who Jesus is. You can be amazed by what Jesus does and still take offense at who Jesus is. The word there that's translated deeply offended is the Greek word skandalizo. It's where we get the word scandalous in English. Apparently, some folks here were scandalized by Jesus. Now, it's somewhat hard for us to understand why they would be offended based solely on Mark's account. Peter, who's the one relaying this story to Mark, doesn't give us as much detail as some of the other gospel writers do. So for sake of clarity, I want us real quick to look at Luke's version of the same story and these same events. Luke felt like he needed to elaborate a little bit on what was going on, and I'm glad he does. This is helpful for our conversation this morning. So watch this. He, uh, this is Luke chapter 4, he uh, went to Nazareth, Jesus, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. Pause. As was his custom. Sabbath day, the synagogue, as was his custom. Little haiku for you there. You're welcome. Now, look, if there's anybody who could skip church, if there's anyone who could say, well, church really doesn't do anything for me. I mean, if there's anyone with com- who with complete impunity could say, I kind of know more than the pastor. 
you know, he didn't even go to seminary. So certainly there's a lot of you who could say that about me. And those of you watching online maybe could even say, you might have just been scrolling through Facebook and somehow we got a side shot. And you're like, is that a mullet? I've never seen a pastor with a mullet. This what kind of shenanigans are they? And we compelled you to watching. This is why I won't cut it off. Laura's like, cut the mullet. And I'm like, man, this is a marketing tool. We're getting people online to watch solely for this magnificent mullet. Uh, others of you might have been watching prior to that, and you saw Jeremy on the screen. You're like, is that Jesus with long hair? What is he doing singing at this church? And you're like, honey, is this Jesus? And she's like, he can't be wearing glasses, and that beard is weak. Stop being so, you know, <laughs> stereotypical. Uh, but the real Jesus and his custom, his weekly ritual was to go to church. Yeah, you can probably imagine how boring first century synagogue must have been for Jesus. Think of this, he's in a rural town, a small little synagogue, not a whole lot of literate people in Nazareth, probably only a couple of scrolls in the entire place. Matter of fact, one of the disciples is recorded as saying about Jesus prior to following him, he was like, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? You want to talk about Nazareth? See, no rabbi of note wants to be in Nazareth. They're all in Jerusalem or one of the big towns. If you're a good preacher, they would move you out of Nazareth. You'd get a better situation. Get yourself a car and a parsonage and probably a little book deal. And matter of fact, the only reason you have even heard of Nazareth is because Jesus put it on the map. Even historians and archaeologists, they have almost nothing to go on aside from the Bible when it comes to Nazareth, because Nazareth is nowhere. And yet, Jesus took his disciples on the 25-mile journey southwest from Capernaum to Nazareth to go to church, as was his custom. And I don't know how your mind works, but I can't help but wonder how many weird people were showing up to church in Nazareth, right? I mean, I had weird people at my church growing up. I can remember sitting behind a guy as a kid, and he would always take his car key, and he would, uh, you know, do some situation, you know, clean it out with the car key. And I can remember as a kid watching him each week post-ear cleansing, take the car key and baptize it in his mouth and this was this is real life this is what happened as a kid and uh you think there were some priesters at first century synagogue the christmas and easter people uh you're still thinking about the car key but there's probably not priesters uh since jesus hasn't risen from the dead yet but there were some folks who did not keep the sabbath day holy and you what you know what jesus still went he didn't complain he didn't despise. He didn't check out mentally. He didn't criticize. He didn't write a blog talking about all the reasons why synagogue didn't meet his needs. And there's only 500 people in the whole town. It's just a bunch of hypocrites and constantly trying to get me to serve. And I need to go somewhere where I can just sit. No, the Son of God had a custom. Jesus Christ went to be with God's people to hear from God's word. Why? Because he was humble. Humble enough to sit in what we would today say is a small, rinky-dink church, probably with a pastime, part-time pastor, you know, making 50 bucks a week, going nowhere, and that was Jesus. And this is amazing because his heart was for the Father, 
and his mind was for the scriptures, and the spirit was his power, and in turn Jesus became an amazing rabbi and preacher. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't bring this up to say, hey, Jesus went to church. Why are you not in church? But rather, I bring this to your attention simply to remind you that the world is filled with resources for you you to grow in your knowledge of Scripture and your likeness of Christ, but they do nothing if you don't avail them to yourself. If these things don't become a custom, a habit, they are of no benefit to you. And what we see is that it was Jesus' custom to avail himself of every opportunity to be with God's people. When the synagogue opened, he was there. When uh, it wasn't the best sermon on earth that day, he was still extracting true and helpful things from it. He was there to connect, to build friendships, to live in community, to be on mission. So that's what he did. And perhaps that's what we should be doing as well. It's never just another Sunday of worship with Jesus. So, he stood up, and coincidentally, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they were amazed. They were amazed because, hey, I've, I've heard he's given sight to the blind. I heard he turned water into wine. I heard he forgave a man of his sin before he told that paralyzed man to get up and walk. Can, can he do this? Can he forgive sin? Maybe that's what setting the oppressed free means. And what's this about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor? Because, see, if you know your Bible, you know Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 61. But what you may not know is Jesus leaves out an entire sentence. He stopped a little short in the verse. Check it out. This is Isaiah 61, verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That's the entire verse. Well, I guess if you're going to leave a verse out, Jesus, that's probably a good one. I mean, you wouldn't want to make anybody mad. Or wait, no, he did that a lot. In fact, it sounds like he made everybody mad. So the reason it's significant for Jesus to skip a verse is because Jesus isn't here for vengeance. Yet, now see, this first coming of Jesus is to forgive your sin. It's to bring you life. It's to declare the Lord's favor. It's to give you sight. It's because Jesus didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but to save it. The second coming of Jesus? Oh, this prophecy of Isaiah will be fulfilled. It'll be a slightly different tune that's played when that trumpet sounds the second time. But Mark tells us the people are amazed. Where did he get this wisdom? The ability to read Scripture with this kind of authority? Except then what happens? Their amazement turns into an offense. The people are like, wait, isn't this Mary's son? Which is an insult, by the way. That wasn't an honest question. They're implying, we don't know who your dad is. 
This was an intentional slander. Uh, this is a patriarchal society. You are known by who your dad is. I am Randy's son. He was Ralph's son. Who was Tom's son. And if they were trying to be polite or inquisitive, they would have said, isn't this Joseph's son? But that's not what they said. And it was deliberate. And they scoffed, your Bible says. Isn't this Mary's son? Gotcha, Jesus. So pay attention. This is huge. Notice, it wasn't what he did that they doubted. It was where he came from. He was one of them. And anytime you view something as common, it gets taken for granted. Haven't you experienced that? Aren't the very things you first love about your spouse the same things that are now the most irritating because you see them every single day? Like when Laura and I were first dating, I was mysterious, right? Talking about, he's just so quiet and unresponsive, and I can't quite read what he's thinking. It's so very mysterious. I just love the mystery. <laughs> now, 10 years in, why don't you talk? How come you don't ever respond? You know what I'm talking about? How can I, I'm not mysterious. I am infuriating. And what was once amazing is now very annoying. Because familiarity breeds contempt. But familiarity also breeds complacency. And once you see Jesus as common, you'll be amazed by his miracles and enraged by his sovereignty. Just for the record, this is the same reason your kids never say thank you. Because you're always there. You always provide. You always give them food to eat. Don't feed them for three days. They'll change their tune, right? They'll say thank you a lot. Don't actually do that. Okay, that's horrible advice. But when Jesus becomes commonplace, when Jesus is just basic and he becomes normal, ordinary carpenter, it's like watching Andy Dufresne for the second time, right? I know what's behind this poster. Come on, Jesus. Back to Luke. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, where you turned water into wine, where you raised a little girl from the dead, where the woman simply touched your cloak, and she was healed from her blood disease. Do your tricks, Jesus. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were even more furious when they heard this. Why? Because Jesus brings up the fact that God picked the poorest widow that he could find from a demon-worshipping culture outside of Jerusalem, and she's the one God rescued from a famine. While many religious Jewish widows quite literally starved to death. And Jesus reminds us here is that God used a slave girl to heal a wicked king's general while many devout Jews died of leprosy. And Jesus is effectually saying, you don't get any hometown advantages just because you know me. It's because you know me that you don't believe. And Luke continues, they got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. 
But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And they still didn't believe. Talk about amazing. Sorry, you're not going to kill me today. These are not the droids you're looking for. And he gone, and they're like, I've got to kill that guy. Where'd he go? And at this moment, Mark records Peter saying, relaying the story, the people were amazed, became annoyed, and Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. You should know there's only two places in your entire Bible that Jesus is amazed. Right here in Mark chapter 6, and again in Luke chapter 7. In case you don't have your entire Bible memorized, Luke chapter 7 is when Jesus is back in Capernaum, and there's a Roman army general who lives there. Scripture tells us that he was a very kind man and very helpful to the Jewish people. He even helped them build a synagogue. And when this man hears that Jesus is in town, he sends some of his people to get Jesus to heal his servant that is sick. And the Jewish people say, this man deserves our help, Jesus. His servant deserves our help. So Jesus starts to set off in the direction of the general's house. And the Jewish people who came to get Jesus and ask him for his help, they sprint back to the commander's house. And they're like, great news, Jesus is coming. And the dude's like, that's terrible news. Tell Jesus not to come. I'm not even worthy to have him in my home. So he says, go back, tell Jesus just to speak the words. For when I speak as an army chief, people do what I say. And I know if Jesus speaks, his word will command the same authority. And Luke 7, 9 says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in all of Israel, the epicenter of religion. Which takes us back to the title of my message. The amazing difference between faith and belief. See, Jesus is amazed by what people do or don't do with the power of his word. Write that down. Jesus is amazed by what people do or don't do with the power of his word. And if there's any one thing we should take from this story, is that there's a huge difference between being a Christ follower and a Christ believer. These people believed in Jesus. I mean, he was right there in front of them. Of course they believed. They've heard the stories. They had relatives in Capernaum tell them about the time Jesus did some miracles there. Of course they believed, but they didn't follow him. They didn't have faith in his words. In fact, they tried to kill him because of his words. And this is somewhat confusing because the most famous passage in all of Scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever, help me, everybody, believes, whosoever believes in him shall shall not perish but have eternal life. So which is it? Are we supposed to believe or do we need to have faith? Yes. Yes. It's both. James 2 tells us that even the demons believe and shudder. Jesus is one of his own disciples, believed, and still betrayed him. The Pharisees watched Jesus die on the cross. They watched him three days later rise from the dead and for 40 days spend time in their own land, and they still chose not to follow him. That's called belief. It's different than faith, but you still need both. See, belief is the easy part. Uh, Belief you could gamble on, and probably it could still even get you into heaven, according to John 3.16. 
But faith is what separates you as a follower. And in today's world, there's a lot of people who want God to change their eternity, but not their mentality. Mm. Yet might I suggest to you to draw your attention to the most terrifying passage in all of Scripture, Matthew seven twenty one, that says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. Yikes. So let's bring Matthew chapter seven and Mark chapter six together like this. What is consistently taken for granted will eventually be taken away. In other words, when you consistently take Jesus for granted, when he becomes just Mary's son, when we are no longer amazed by his word, he will eventually just leave. And I wonder how many people have stopped being amazed at the sacrifice Jesus made because we've been saved for too long. And we no longer have to sacrifice the goat and the sheep and the bull and the dove and we don't have to physically smell the burning flesh. And we don't consistently see the law as it was written down by God. And we don't remember the blessing of forgiveness that Jesus offered. Maybe we would do well to ask ourselves, is Jesus amazed by what I've done with his word? You know, how I'm living my life. Am I living in such a way that Jesus would be amazed with me? Would I be one of the times Jesus is amazed, not the second time Jesus was amazed? Because remember, Jesus couldn't do the miracles he wanted to do because of how the people lived. So what's Jesus do? End of Mark chapter, uh, end of verse 6, it says, Then Jesus leaves Nazareth, goes from village to village, teaching the people. And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to do miracles, cast out evil spirits, among other things. Now pay attention because this is huge. This is not coincidence that Jesus intentionally brings his disciples back to his hometown where they witness his inability to do miracles only to be deliberately sent out with the ability to do the very miracles that he himself wasn't able to do. Right? You see that? He couldn't do miracles. Then he sends them out with the authority to do miracles. And if you read verse 12, they do miracles. Uh, They went out and they preach that people should repent, and they drive out demons, they anoint sick people, and they are healed. Miracles. So what's this teach us? The amazing difference between faith and belief. See, Jesus brought his disciples here to his hometown so that they could witness his rejection so that when they were released and experienced the same rejection, they would know they're not being rejected by the people. The people are rejecting themselves. Isn't that what's going on? The people weren't rejecting Jesus. They were amazed. What offended them? That he was one of them. See, they weren't rejecting his teaching. They were rejecting themselves. I'll say it this way. Most people are convinced, but they're not committed. Because I know me. And I know without the power of the Holy Spirit of God living in me, I am nothing. I am the people of Nazareth. Scandalized by Jesus' preaching. 
See what's the amazing difference between faith and belief? Growth, transformation, fruit, life change. Here's how you can write it down. Belief is what we know. Faith is how we live. Belief is what we know. Faith is how we live. Okay? Listen to me now. Those of you watching online, tune right in. Turn up the volume. Because you can believe and never be transformed. But you cannot be faithful and never experience change. It's impossible. And the craziest part, dare I say, the most amazing part, is the life change doesn't depend solely on you. Jesus wants to do the miracle, but he won't override your unbelief. It's a both and. Look at verse 3 again. He's just a carpenter the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. His sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended. And what's it say? They refused to believe in him. Jesus didn't cause that. They refused to believe. Those who didn't refuse to listen to his word, to do the things, his disciples, the tax collectors, the hookers, the widow from the demon-worshipping culture uh, of Zarephath, the Naaman, the Syrian, they all went out, went town to town, saying, you're never going to believe this. It's not coincidence that Jesus' brother is mentioned here because years later, James would write, faith without works is dead because he saw that firsthand. He saw the amazing difference between faith and belief. He saw what happens when you smother the fire of the Holy Spirit by never living out your faith. So what do we do? How do we get faith into works? How does this start driving us forward, Pastor? That's part five of ghostwriting and pen names. We'll see you next week. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us the opportunity and the freedom to come here and gather in this place to hear from it. God, we know that you are trying to teach us that there's a difference between faith and belief and that you're amazed by what people do or don't do with your word. And the very first thing you commanded and described in your word is your amazing grace. That those who believe in you can be saved from their sin and that their life will be transformed. They'll be made new. And in turn, this faith will cause them to live in such a way that brings your name glory and their lives joy. And God, we're just asking you to do what only you can do and help spur on this belief, turn it into faith, turn it into a life worth living. Open our eyes to see where we're falling short in this in life. God, you've written the law on our hearts, and so we're just asking your Holy Spirit to do what he promised to do and start whispering to our soul, this is where you're falling short. But because of my grace, I forgive you. I'm just asking you to start turning, repenting, change your direction. God, speak to our lives. Help us understand where we're falling short and how we can change in accordance with your word. Help us this week to have an opportunity to see people as you see them and help them 
with this gospel message, serve them in some capacity, and perhaps change their lives. We love you, we praise you, we thank you for this free gift of salvation through your son Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.